Margaret Skinner enters and exits the history books as the woman who was wounded commanding a military action in the 1916 Rising. A new book on the rebel, feminist and activist illuminates Skinner's long and radical life. We'll begin with the words of her friend Nora Connolly O'Brien, though, from the RTE Radio archives. Loving kindness was the way you could describe Margaret Skinner, although she was such a terrific fighter for freedom and against injustice of all kinds and to help people on in the world and... But loving-kindness, if you wanted to say, was the abiding spirit in Margaret. Nora Connolly O'Brien on Margaret Skinner. I'm joined now by Dr Mary McAuliffe, Assistant Professor in Gender Studies at University College Dublin, who's written the first biography of Margaret Skinner. Mary, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. What first brought Margaret to your attention? Uh, I was the historical consultant on the Royal College of Surgeons centenary exhibition in 2016. Uh, And of course, Margaret was stationed there during the 1916 Rising. And I also had the privilege of meeting her grandniece, who lives in Australia, who arrived with a wonderful hoard of photographs taken throughout Margaret's life and various other bits of archival material which we used in the exhibition. So from then on, I was intrigued by Margaret Skinner. I had known her name, but not very much about her history. And of course, then when the digitisation of the military uh, pension applications happened, Margaret was the the, the sniper girl who didn't get her pension. So she kind of entered my consciousness then as well. And so from then on, I have been looking at who Margaret Skinner was. Now, she actually wrote an autobiography, but it's not very extensive. It only covers her life up to 1916, Doing My Bit for Ireland. Yes, she did. She And it, that is a very interesting book. It's one of the earliest women's eyewitness accounts of the 1916 Rising, obviously written as a propaganda piece uh, while she was on the Irish Republican Women's Tour in America and published there in 1917. But it also shows Margaret's route to politicisation, I suppose, and gives her an account of her early years in Coatbridge, where she was born, and Glasgow, where she grew up and where she came to, I suppose, a political awakening, both as a suffragette, a militant suffragette, and as a militant Irish nationalist. Now, her best-known role, I suppose, is her role in The Rising. So tell us a little bit about her background. As you say, she was uh, she's associated with Glasgow, a bit like James Connolly, family originally from uh, Monaghan. But tell us what brought her to the, the 1916 Rising in the first place, that uh, first part of her active career, as it were. Well, I think she was very much involved in the Gaelic League initially and like many of the rebels of 1916, she comes through cultural nationalism through to uh, militant nationalism. But she's also very much engaged with feminist activism and is, from her very early years, a, a left-leaning socialist, very much in, concerned with the rights of workers. So those three great movements that Countess Markovitch talked about, you know, the cause of labour, Irish freedom and women's rights were very much part of her from the time she was in her late teens and when she was living in Glasgow. Coming to Dublin, she had been involved in Cumannamon in Glasgow, the Andevlin branch there. She'd been working with the Irish volunteers to raid the shipyards in Glasgow to get arms and ammunition and bomb-making equipment. And in December 1915, she takes a boat to Dublin from Glasgow with materials on her, bomb-making materials on her, wrapped around her body. Uh, And she talks in Doing My Bit about how scared she was that she'd actually blow up 
if the crossing was very rough. And there she meets James Connolly. She uh, stays with Countess Markovich. She meets Thomas McDonough, who gives her uh, with a revolver, which she takes into the Rising with her. And obviously becomes very trusted by the leadership because she does know to come back to Dublin just before. And, and of course, as a teacher, she got her Easter holidays then to come back just before the Rising began the week before Easter week. Now, she was in Stephen's Green with Michael Mallon during the Rising. Tell us about her experience in, uh, in, in Stephen's Green in Easter week. Well, she began first as a dispatch carrier and in doing my bit, there's a very evocative paragraph about how she was sent off from Liberty Hall when they'd all gathered there on Easter Monday to go up to the green to see if anything was moving around there, if any, you know, DMP or British soldiers. And if there weren't, she was told to wait until the garrison arrived. And she talks about seeing the men in green uniforms marching along through the trees and waiting for them to arrive and she ends that paragraph with the revolution has begun. She spends the week then in the garrison there obviously they retreat to the Royal College of Surgeons from Stephen's Green early on Tuesday because they couldn't um, protect themselves in the green. She is a dispatch carrier for the first couple of days she goes from the Royal College of Surgeons to the GPO several times and indeed she says she was there at the GPO when Pierce reads the proclamation and that is a very important moment for her because she comes back to that proclamation again and again not just in doing my bit for Ireland but throughout her life. Uh, She says it said that women were on an equality with men and that is the touchstone I suppose of her life from then on. Interestingly she does make a distinction between her activities as a dispatch carrier which she performed in her grey dress, cycling her bicycle, a young woman cycling through Dublin, and her activities as a sniper. Uh, She changed into a mole-skilled uniform that Countess Markovich had made for her. And she's very conscious that she could only shoot a rifle, which she was quite expert with, when she was in the uniform of the Irish Citizen Army. So she makes that distinction herself. And and the gender performance of masculinity and femininity is very interesting in doing my bit for Ireland. Of course, she's wounded. She leads an attack on a sniper nest and and she uses the proclamation to persuade Malin to allow her to do that. Again, saying we were on an equality with the men. And she goes out with William Partridge of the Irish Citizen Army and a young man, Freddie Ryan, who was only 17, also of the ICA, and they try they, they head towards the university church from the Royal College of Surgeons, but they're detected and fired on. Young Freddie Ryan is killed and Margaret is seriously wounded three times and has to be taken back to the College of Surgeons, where she's operated on by the women there. And it, and it's testimony, I think, to the excellent training the first aid women had from Dr. Kathleen Lynn that they save her life. They actually thought she would die. It was huge blood loss. Uh, Frank Robbins describes having to move her and all the blood that she had lost and he thought she was dead but actually she survives and lives until 1971 with those wounds. Because she was wounded she isn't arrested after the rising so she last sees her companions being taken off to Richmond Barracks and then on to Kilmainham Jail and mentions it's the last time she sees Michael Mallon because of course he's executed. She herself goes to St Vincent's Hospital where she will spend a few months recovering there. 
Let's backtrack a little bit because we're going to hear the voice now of Margaret Skinner herself from the RTE Radio Archives describing how exactly she was shot during the Rising. It took only a few minutes to reach the building at the foot of Harcourt Street. William Partridge smashed the glass door in front of the shop with his rifle butt and a flash followed. I went past him into the doorway of the shop and half turned to tell the others to come on and behind me came the sound of a volley and I fell. The flash from Partridge's gun had revealed us to the enemy who fired from a Sinn Féin bank opposite. Partridge lifted and carried me into the street and there on the sidewalk lay a figure in the pool of blood. It was Fred Ryan, a boy of 17. He was dead. I was taken back to the College of Surgeons. When my coat was cut off, I was found to have three bullet wounds, one a quarter of an inch from my spine. If I had not turned to call the others, I would have got all three into my back. Margaret Skinner there describing how she was injured by gunfire during the Easter Rising and by the sound of it narrowly escaping death or a permanent disabling injury. So what did she do then, Mary, after she recovered from her wounds? Well, she got back to Scotland and she was back in Glasgow, got some work. She was a, she's a mathematics teacher and she got some work, but she couldn't settle. And being in touch with both Nora Connolly and Hannah Shee Skeffington, she decided to go to New York. Uh, her brother was actually there, Thomas Skinner, uh, very much involved in Clonagoyle over there. So she herself wasn't the only member of her family who was engaged with Irish nationalism. So she joins Nora Connolly and Hannah Shee Skeffington in New York and for the next 18 months joins them and other Irish Republican women going from city to city in America, giving talks to the Irish American crowd, sellout talks. She's at one stage in Washington. She's in Chicago, Boston, New Orleans, New York. Their base is in New York and they don't particularly like it, particularly in summertime. They find it very, very hot. And she's also very upset because her father dies while she's in New York and obviously she's not there for that. Part of the propaganda was writing her memoir and, uh, you know, bringing that Irish-American crowd around to supporting the cause of Irish freedom and fundraising for reorganising and rearming the Irish volunteers and reorganising Cumann Amman. So that's very important work herself and her best friend, Nora Connolly, are doing there. And then one other thing that is very important to her, it's most likely in New York that she meets Nora O'Keefe, Uh, O'Keefe was an Irish immigrant, the daughter of a farming family from Tipperary, a family with a long tradition in Fenian politics and in nationalist politics. And Nora and Margaret will be life partners and will spend the rest of their lives living together in Dublin from 1919 when they're both back uh, living in Fairview first and then in Clontarf. So from 1919, after her period in America, she, as you say, returns to Ireland via Liverpool. What does she do during the War of Independence years? Interestingly, um, she's not, uh, uh, she doesn't wear her uniform, her moleskin uniform or anything like that during the War of Independence. And her behaviour is more in common with what most common man women did at the time during the War of Independence. She runs a safe house. She's a very senior member of the Fairview Coming Amon and eventually becomes director of training of the entire organisation. She's uh, invited onto the Central Committee. She is transporting arms and ammunition. She's constantly fundraising and running all sorts of fundraising events. Uh, She's dispatch carrying, as is Nora O'Keefe. And and O'Keefe spends a large portion of the War of Independence 
in the Munster area, dispatch carrying all around Tipperary, Waterford and areas like that. So it is a house that is busy at the work of women during the War of Independence. And her relationship with Nora O'Keefe was it was a romantic relationship. It was. Um, Margaret apparently did keep a diary all of her life and unfortunately her executor burned the diaries on her death because he felt that he didn't want her private life to make it into the history books, which is a a hint of maybe discomfort with that private life. However, her grandniece has shared the images of their life together and they leave in no doubt that they were a couple. Nor do sources in the Sheehy Skeffington archive Margaret and Nora O'Keefe were great friends with Hannah Shee Skeffington and with Nora Connolly. And there are letters from all four women in the Shee Skeffington archive. And it's very obvious that they are regarded as a household, a couple. And that's the way they're spoken about by their friends. And that's the way they're treated. They're invited to all events together, anything to do with Cumann or the funerals of old uh, Cumann comrades. You see them listed in the who attended section of the reports and you see them operating together all this time. And of course Nora O'Keefe had her own Republican pedigree didn't she in Tipperary? She absolutely did. Um, Her sisters were in Cumann down there. Her brothers were in the Irish Volunteers. They're very much involved with the big four you know uh, Sean Tracy, Dan Breen and the others. In fact Nora has a distant kinship with Sean Tracy and is the one that identifies him when he's uh, shot in Dublin. She goes to St. Brickens Hospital and takes a lock of his hair and a ring off his finger and identifies him as Sean Tracy and helps with organising, getting his body transported back to Tipperary. Uh, her brothers are also involved in the Civil War and fight with Cahal Brua in Hammond's Hotel and are imprisoned, as are Margaret and Nora, of course. What side then does Margaret take in the Civil War? Well, uh, obviously the anti-treaty side, and vehemently so. In the Cumann meeting to decide on their stance on the treaty, um, she says that anyone who would take an oath of an allegiance to the Crown could no longer be regarded as an Irishman. And while she's very sad to see uh, comrades like Jenny Wise Power leave Cumann, she feels that the treaty betrayed everything that they had fought for. And she becomes very much involved and she's very senior in that. Once the fighting breaks out in the four courts, she sets up the Cumann facilities nearby in Tara Hall. She commandeers an ambulance and meets with some Cumann women from Scotland, from Glasgow, whom she knew who were bringing over arms and loads up the ambulance with the arms and takes them off to Cahal Brua at the Hammond Hotel. And she continues to be that until the Battle of Dublin is over. Then she becomes more involved in the administrative elements of the civil war on the anti-treaty side. She actually becomes the quartermaster general of the anti-treaty IRA and disperses funds all around the country. She's very important in that. And Nora O'Keefe is also very important, much more as a propagandist for the anti-treaty side and runs a short-lived anti-treaty newspaper in Tipperary. Both, of course, are arrested. Margaret, because uh, she's arrested in possession of a rifle or a revolver the day after Christmas, 1922, and Nora is arrested in Tipperary er, about a month earlier. Uh, So both of them spend most of 1923, Nora in Kilmainham Jail being transferred from Cork and Margaret in Mountjoy Jail initially, and then, of course, along with the rest, is transferred to the North Dublin Union. She goes on hunger strike three times during this period as well. 
There's still about 50 years of her life left ahead of her at that point. What becomes of her after the Civil War ends? Well, this was it. This is the importance of doing biographical research on these women, because we do get to know a lot of what many of them did during the revolutionary period, but so many of them live for another five or six decades. And Margaret is as active in this period. In fact, she doesn't really stop until a year or two before her death when she gets ill. She's very much involved with Cumann Amman. She remains in Cumann Amman through the 1920s and 1930s and is on the executive. And indeed, when Countess Markievicz steps down, she does contest the election for the leadership of Cumann Amman, but obviously doesn't get that. She goes back to teaching and by 1928 she has a position in the Sisters of Charity uh, National School in King's Inn and she joins the INTO immediately. She's very conscious that anyone, particularly any woman who has a job, should be in a trade union and she will spend the rest of her career in the INTO, climbing the ranks, eventually becoming its president in 1956. And I think the two things that were most important to her was pay parity for women and unmarried male teachers in the profession. And when the marriage bar was introduced to get that marriage bar overturned, which eventually does happen the year after she was president of the INTO. She is very much involved in the teachers strike in 1946. She's on the Roe Commission, which looks at standards and practices and pay and conditions. She is invited on to several committees. She's very much involved with the Dublin branch of the INTO, who would be the most radical branch, I suppose, of the INTO, and continues doing that. She represents them in several international conferences. She's also very much involved politically, uh, very much a left-leaning socialist bent to our political ideologies. And she joins Clonlan Publica and becomes one of its senior members once it's set up in 1946 and indeed runs for election. Although she does say because she put her name in Irish on the ballot, people probably didn't recognise there was her and she never did get elected. Let's uh, go back to her career as a teacher, because by all accounts, she was as dedicated to her teaching as she was to the Republican movement. And Maura Comerford was her friend and her comrade for many years. And here she recalls what Margaret was like as a teacher. She taught in King's End School. She was such a firm trades unionist. She wouldn't tolerate any teachers in the school who didn't belong to the, uh, the teachers' organisation. Margaret was a most dedicated teacher and she translated the ideas of Pierce for her own pupils. She made them love Irish history and the language and this music and the songs of Ireland. She was very strict but she had great control over the girls and had their affection uh, to an extraordinary degree. She was a most unusual teacher. A strict teacher, a a fair teacher however, but uh, someone who won the affection of her students according to uh, Maura Comerford. Um, Mary, there's some amazing photographs in the book. Were they of huge assistance in researching, you know, aspects of her life that wouldn't necessarily have been in the public domain? Absolutely, particularly after I found out that uh, much of her written archive had been destroyed or, or was remained inaccessible if it's still there. And so I'm very grateful to her descendants and to the descendants of Nora O'Keefe, 
who shared with me so much, particularly the visual material. And uh, for women particularly who mightn't leave archives, written archives, or if they did, their families mightn't have recognised the importance. Having those photographs was of great help to seeing, I, I suppose, the visual impact of a life. And there are only some of the many, many tens of photographs that her grandniece in Australia have. And, and I hope to do some work on them with her grandniece into the future. They're an amazing chronicle of both a public and a private life. So it was a real privilege to have access to those photographs. One of the most striking photographs, actually, is of her dressed as a boy. Tell us about that photograph, because uh, it has an interesting (laughs) pedigree or provenance of its own. Yes, that was taken in 1915, possibly in Wicklow. When she comes over in 1915, she goes on a lot of route marches with Nafiana, dressed as one of them. And interestingly, it appears in Doing My Bit for Ireland, but it is her alone, obviously a doctored version of what the original photograph was. In the original photograph, she's dressed in her Fianna gear with her cigarette hanging from her mouth with two young women, one on either side, linking her arms. And I suppose knowing what we know of Margaret's subsequent private life that she was in a same-sex relationship with Nora O'Keefe, it's interesting to see that sort of queer image, I suppose we would call it now, of Margaret performing a certain type of female masculinity or female militarism. And it's interesting that she does write about that in Doing My Bit for Ireland only in the uniform of Nafiana or the Irish volunteers, would she be the soldier? She did understand that dressed as a woman, you had a different role to play. Well, she's a fascinating woman. She had a fascinating life, a great story, and did get the pension in the end, didn't get it in 1924. She did. She did. <laughs> when Dev came to power, uh, she, yes. uh, she, she she did get, get the pension that, uh, that she deserves. The book is simply called Margaret Skinner published by UCD Press. The author is Dr. Mary McAuliffe. Mary, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.